Welcome to the 287th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Sarah McBride and Bernadette McBride back to COVID Calls for a follow-up on their lives and work in the 14 months since we first talked. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. <clears throat> as of today, June 3rd, 2021, there are 3,693,432 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Brazil is reporting 467,706 lives lost from COVID-19. In Portugal, they're reporting 17,026 deaths due to the disease. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is COVID-19 ravaged Texas nursing homes. Here are the stories behind the numbers. This was written by Carla Astudillo and Karen Brooks Harper and appeared April 15th, 2021 in the Texas Tribune. I'm gonna read one segment of this piece today. I encourage you to go online and find it. It's an extraordinary piece of reporting. One year into the pandemic, COVID-19 has taken a heavy toll in Texas nursing homes and other long-term care facilities. When the coronavirus invaded nursing homes in March of 2020, one in five infected people older than 80 had to be hospitalized and nearly 8% of them died. As of April 14th of this year, 8,961 nursing home residents with COVID-19 have died in Texas. Nearly 10% of the state's estimated 90,000 nursing home residents. That's about 20% of the COVID-19 related deaths reported for the state. More than a dozen facilities lost at least 30 residents to the virus. It's just a monster, said Christina Arismendi Merlez, administrator of the Amistad Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in Uvalde, Texas, which cared for about 100 people when the pandemic began and reported 10 deaths and 41 total COVID-19 cases to the state over the past year. One year ago in April, the state released its first data showing the toll the pandemic was taking on nursing home residents. By Easter of 2020, one in six COVID-19 related deaths in Texas were nursing home residents. Within a month, the death toll in Texas nursing homes reached nearly 500. The following 12 months would bring nightmarish death tolls, isolation, panic, and grief for hundreds of thousands of nursing residents, staff, and families. Linda Langford and her husband, Ray, raised their son on their 4,000-acre ranch in Uvalde, about 90 miles west of San Antonio. She taught English and computer skills at the local high school before retiring two decades ago. In 2019, 74-year-old Linda took a spill in their home out in the country and broke her arm and shoulder. The pain medication made her dizzy, and even after she stopped taking the medication, her falls happened more frequently. Home care was hard to come by in their rural area. When the pandemic hit, the couple was close to making a difficult decision to move Linda into long-term care so she wouldn't be home alone while Ray was working on the ranch. I've never been away from home without my husband, she said. It scared me. At the end of July, Texas nursing homes recorded their deadliest seven-day stretch since the pandemic began, with 423 deaths reported, and Langford was about to move into one. You'd read the news, and the nursing homes were the worst places for COVID, Langford said. In San Antonio, the big city next to us, they were having horrible times, just running rampant through a whole building. And a lot of nursing home residents didn't survive. That scared me. After a few days in an assisted living facility, Langford moved into Amistad in August. She went immediately into a quarantine unit for two weeks. 
When she saw all the safety protocols the staff were going through every time they came into her unit, she felt safer. I'll never forget, they'd come in my room and do whatever they were going to do, and then they'd walk out and take all that stuff off, that blue gown, the masks, all of that, and every time they came into my room, they'd do that, Langford said, and I just couldn't believe it, but they did, and I never saw them cut corners. That's a horrible thing to watch those. She also described ambulances going by. It's a horrible thing to see ambulances go by. She often sat at her window, which faced the street in front of the facility entrance, and watched ambulances come and go at all hours of the night. She knew many of the people inside the ambulances were COVID-19 cases. Several, she said, didn't come back. Socializing in the common areas and the dining room wasn't allowed per COVID-19 regulations, but when one of the residents died, Langford said, everyone would stand in their doorways, cry together, and talk about happy memorials and memories with their friend, a socially distant memorial. Near the end of the summer, the forced isolation of nursing home residents was drawing increasing criticism across the nation. That led to state and federal officials making the decision to allow essential caregivers, usually a friend or family member who regularly visited before the lockdowns, to be trained, screened, and allowed regular visits with their loved ones inside the nursing homes. In August, Texas began permitting nursing homes that had no active COVID-19 cases among residents and no cases among staff for the previous two weeks to allow limited outside visits. Only a small portion of the state's nursing homes met that criteria at the time. At Focused Care in Brenham, Texas, the change was immediate, said Jeannie Dupree, Executive Director of Operations. She remembers a man who was in hospice care and stopped eating when his wife couldn't visit him every day after the lockdowns began. But then once we encouraged her to apply to be an essential caregiver, he perked up. Dupree said, it was such a radical change that they're actually looking at getting him off hospice. Langford celebrated her 74th birthday at the nursing home in October. Her husband, their son, and his wife and children were there along with friends. We had my birthday party through the window. All my friends came and stayed outside. I was inside, she said, chuckling. It's better than nothing, but it's not good. For Langford, it was the second milestone she'd missed because of the pandemic. In May, she and her husband had planned a large family celebration for the couple's 50th wedding anniversary at their favorite place along the river north of Uvalde, but they canceled it because of the pandemic. Langford still wipes away tears when she thinks about it. By April 6th, 1,212 of the state's 1,223 nursing homes had administered vaccines to residents or staff, according to the state health department, but the virus hasn't been defeated in Texas nursing homes. In mid-February of this year, a historic snowstorm and freeze delayed a vaccination clinic at Focused Care in Brenham. And shortly after, 18 residents and staff tested positive for the virus at the facility's only big outbreak since the pandemic began. Some of those residents had recently received the vaccine, but the injection may not have had time to become fully effective yet, Dupree said. Four of the infected residents died, although COVID-19 was not confirmed as the cause of death. Three of them had declined to be vaccinated, company officials said. It was a critical reminder that in spite of the relaxing of state pandemic restrictions recently, the company had good reason to keep its protocols in place, she said. You realize that we definitely need to still keep our vigilance and keep everything going because you never know, she said. Okay, let's turn to our conversation for today. This is one I've really been looking forward to. Let me reintroduce my guests to you. Uh, you may have seen them first on COVID calls last year. Bernadette McBride has a master's degree in nursing from Gonzaga University and a master's in health education from Whitworth University. She's a registered nurse practitioner in Washington State, specializing in geriatric family practice. Bernadette formerly was the owner of adult Family Homes, Legacy Management, and Tranquility Life Care in the Tri-Cities area for 25 years. First master's degree, she focused on death and bereavement of parents who lost children to SIDS. The second guest is Sarah K. McBride. Sarah has a PhD in media studies from Massey University. She has a master's degree in public administration from the University of Hawaii at Manoa with a concentration in disaster management and humanitarian assistance 
She's currently working at the U.S. Geological Survey, studying the communication of aftershock forecasts and earthquake early warning. Sarah has also served 16 years as a practitioner in emergency management, and she was part of New Zealand's H1N1 response in 2009. Sarah and Bernadette, welcome back to COVID Calls. Thank you. Great to see you again, Scott. I'm going to start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic is looking like there today, maybe what the vaccination situation is looking like there today. Bernadette, let me start with you, please. Sure. I am uh, in my home in uh, eastern Washington, in Kennewick, Washington. Um, I was just looking at the vaccination stat for the state of Washington. Uh, we are about 9 million people and about 8 million have received their first shots. So we're doing pretty well in terms of vaccination. Um, and uh, we vaccinate in Washington the 12 years old and over. That, those numbers are pretty impressive for the state. Uh, yes. That, that sounds like the highest rate. I don't know if any state's doing better than that. It, what do you attribute that to? Has been just good public health messaging or just something about the, the culture there? Uh, People are ready to get vaccinated? Yes, and they, they're very creative on uh, where they vaccinate. Uh, every pharmacy, you can get your vaccination. Uh, they have uh, vaccination places where you can just walk in. Uh, it's all over the, the area. Uh, we we have uh, some population type that are more reluctant to get their vaccination. And I think they're working with those groups to work closer to them. Sarah, let me ask you the same question where you're calling from today and, and is the situation there looking as good as it is for Bernadette? Uh, almost, not quite. Um, so I'm in Santa Clara County in uh, California. Um, that's the Bay Area, and um, just south of, I just live south in San Francisco. I live in Silicon Valley. That's basically it. And we have a pretty high vaccination rate. Um, 1.3 million residents have already received one dose out of the residents in, Cal in my county, and that's about 70, uh, 77% of the population has received at least one do dose. We have had a fairly high rate of COVID deaths in my county. We've had 2,100 people die. Um, and in the state of California, uh, over 63,000 people have died so far. And the, the vaccination culture there is as robust as it is in eastern Washington, where your mom's calling from? Yes. When the vaccines first came out in my county, um, people, there were lines everywhere. Um, you know, it, it was really hard to get an appointment. Um, to get vaccinated at the beginning of this. And it took about six weeks for it to be a little bit easier to get an appointment. But um, yeah, I think everybody was very excited to get vaccinated. I myself have been fully vaccinated now. I've got my two shots and as has my husband. And yeah, we're very grateful for the vaccine now. But I will stay, say we're still in mostly in shelter in place here. You know, we still have to wear masks when you go to the supermarket or when we go out to eat um, and we, prefer to eat outdoors and me and my husband are still full fully working from home mm -hmm. well thank you for those updates i find myself asking people more and more about this vaccination um we still i'm in south korea now so that's changed since the last time we talked but um and i think right now it's 65 and up has have access and they have leftover doses that you can try to follow on an app and see if one's available. You can try to race to get it. So in some ways, we are where you were back in maybe in March, February or March. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's it's pins and needles in that in that regard. Uh, no, no pun intended. I mean, it really is. It's like we're just sort of waiting. Um, so I'm glad that you both have had access and, and I appreciate you sharing those details. So. Um, Let's. We have a lot to talk about today, but I want to talk first about what you've been through since we talked last. And, and I went back and looked. We talked on April the 2nd of last year, which in COVID time is an impossibly long ago period uh, and a different world in many ways. We're at the beginning of that terrible month of April. At that time, 5,648 
people had died in the United States from COVID-19, if you can imagine that. Bernadette, tell us about your experience last year. I know you had COVID. Tell us about that. Well, um, when we last talked, we were really um, making our facilities a fortress, basically getting our staff and our residents protected. We were on lockdown, full garbs and and everything. And, and we felt very, you know, as prepared as we could be. And uh, in the end of May, at the end of May, uh, we were able to actually test people in the facilities as well as the staff. And we had only like a 24 hour turnover. So it was perfect. And so we tested all of our staff and all of the residents and everybody came negative except one person, my husband, who doesn't work in the facility. I was, test, I was testing negative. Um, so I retested, that was on the 31st of May. I, re, I was negative. I retested again on the 5th of June, which happened to be my birthday, and I was positive. And my husband had virtually no symptoms except losing his sense of smell and taste. I went well for about a week. I thought no big deal uh, until I woke up in the middle of the night feeling very ill. Now I had prepared for that so um, because we didn't know what we were and the hospital were getting pretty full and uh, the ICU the, were full. And so I had um, an oximeter to test my oxygen uh, at home. And then we had O2 concentrators that if our oxygen would go down, we'd put it on and up the oxygen. And um, things for the cough and so on. And um, my oxygen, I noted that my oxygen level was dropping quite fast in, uh, in less than uh, 10 hours. It went from normal to uh, very low. Uh, at some point, uh, I, I put the maximum oxygen on me, and I realized I wasn't going to beat it at home. I had to eventually call 911, which I did. I was honestly terrified to leave my husband home by himself, knowing he was testing for he was positive for COVID. Uh, uh, by the time I got to the hospital, my oxygen had dropped with supplemental oxygen down to 74, which is not very good at all. And um, it, uh, uh, I was admitted in res basically respiratory failure and hypoxia. And uh, so um, I thought I, the, the level it was, I thought they were going to have to put me on a ventilator. Um, but they put me on different medications that seemed to turn me around fairly quickly. Uh, and uh, in, in five days, I was well enough to go home. Uh, I went home and then uh, I was extremely tired, fatigued. Uh, I, at that point, uh, a week later, I started having chest pain. And uh, I realized I was probably throwing clots or something was happening. So I called 911 again. And sure enough, I was uh, throwing uh, clots. And so I went on some medication, anticoagulant and so on. Uh, my heart was doing different things that normally they shouldn't, it shouldn't be doing. Uh, and so uh, I... Um, I ended up uh, being kind of a long-termer, uh, and uh, but the good news is um, around December, so it happened in June, uh, around December, I felt like myself again. Uh, I have had complete physical by a pneumonologist and cardiologist, and everything seems to be in good shape. So it was, uh, it was both insidious and brutal. I'm glad you're feeling better. Mm -hmm. I'm really sorry you went through that. And I thought I misheard you at first, but you described this happening to you in June. And you mm -hmm. said you felt better in December. Yes. So, yeah, I was, I was extremely tired. I was short of breath. I, it, 
I was actually having to have oxygen at night. Uh, when I came home, I had to walk with a walker. Um, and uh, it, it, the level of fatigue and uh, was was amazing. Um, I yeah. So I, at some point, I realized around September, I realized that I was not going to recover well enough to be able to continue running our adult family homes. And so uh, I got permission from the state of Washington to uh, proceed and sell the homes to another provider. Uh, so I could, you know, get better because I wasn't sure I was going to get better. Um, so that's what we did. Uh, but I'm happy to report that I was the only casualty of all of all my residents and my staff. I was the only one that got sick with COVID. So uh, and uh, so I I didn't lose any residents. I didn't lose any staff to COVID. So I'm very proud of the fact that they they did such an amazing job to protect the residents and to protect themselves. Um, and I, if it was not for my husband, we probably got it at Home Depot or someplace like this. Um, it, uh, you know, the the rest of us, um, they were all okay. I mean, that really says a lot about the preparations that you made uh, to bring safety to the adult care facilities that you were managing at that time. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. What was happening while you were suffering in June and throughout the rest of the year? Did you have to hand over the management? How did you keep those facilities running? Because what I know from our last conversation is you knew where every cotton ball was kept in that place. I mean, you really had a sense of how the place runs. And so it's not so easy to turn that around, turn that over to somebody else. Well, I, I have a, a couple of key people that, um, uh, one that had worked for me, a nurse would have worked for me for 17 years and the other one for 13 years. And they knew everything that I know. And so they were able to continue running the business. I, you know, I was on the phone a lot. Uh, and but I, I couldn't go to the facilities um, except you know short bursts uh, when I started feeling better. Sarah, let me bring you in to this. Um, I won't put you through telling the whole story from your side unless you want to, but I would like to know like what what was going through your mind and what were you doing while all this was happening with Bernadette well, and your father. I was really scared, of course, and and because I couldn't fly up to be with mom and dad. Well, you know, and, and even if I had wanted to go to the Tri Cities to be close to them, I couldn't be in proximity to them because they wouldn't risk me getting COVID. Even though I'm I'm so much younger, and you know, all of all of those considerations. You may have witnessed the first uh, mother daughter fight on COVID COVID calls because I was constantly telling mom. When mom got really sick and in, in, in the middle of the night, I was calling her constantly in the morning, telling her to go to the hospital and that she needed to go to the hospital. And I knew mom was bad off because she wouldn't talk to me on the phone. And, you know, I had to call dad and I'm like, I need to talk to mom. And mom would just shake her head and say, no, I don't I don't want to talk to her. Um, and I I enlisted my older brother, Christopher, uh, who lives in the area to try to get mom to go to the hospital and mom was like, no, I'm not going. And um, it took it took quite a lot. And I know exactly why mom didn't want to go. She didn't want to leave dad because nobody could look after dad. Dad's a little bit older and not as healthy and vivacious as my mother. Um, and so we were all very worried about dad as well. And I know that was mom's biggest concern. Um, and so the next thing, mom was in the hospital. She was in good care. Um, then, then it was going after looking after dad. 
And that was very hard because my dad went through a real difficult time being on his own, right? He didn't have anyone there for him. He was feeling physically fine, but of course he was terrified about losing mom. So that was that was a very complex time for us all. I can't believe it's been a year no. <laughs> since, since then. It, it doesn't, in some ways it feels like it was forever ago and the other, it feels like it was yesterday. But I remember just not being able to sleep at night, not just constantly worried, just constantly worried. And then when mom went in the second time, I think I was the most scared because mm. the clotting issue, as you, as, as we know, it, that was just such an emergent thing happening, right, Scott? Like we were still learning. We, we kind of knew about how COVID came in, but we didn't know about these more odd side effects that were occurring. And um, when mom kind of failed to come back and then she had to go back in, I was just really, really, really scared. Um, so, yeah. The stress and strain of that operates at so many different levels. Bernadette, I wonder you're still dealing with it. I mean, the having to, to sell your business, for example, but even still worrying about long COVID. I mean, I, a couple of weeks ago, I had long COVID support network um, interview and I had folks on from the UK and from the Netherlands. And these are people who still have symptoms, the tiredness symptoms that you described, for example, a year, a year later. I wonder how this experience has changed your life to what extent it's still kind of stuck with you. Well, I'm not naturally a, a very anxious person. So, uh, but um, yeah, my EKG shows some uh, slight abnormalities still. Um, but I, I would say I've recovered. I'm not sleeping all the time, or I'm taking like a little nap in the middle of the day because I can do it now. Um, but it's really, I feel, um, I feel good. I don't feel that, um, I was worried that with that level of oxygen that I would lose a few gray cells and, you know, and have issues with memory and all that sort of thing. And that doesn't seem to be happening. Um, right now I'm uh, volunteering, uh, in humanitarian kind of things. And, uh, so it's keeping me busy in that level as well. I am grateful really not to have to sleep with my cell phone next to my pillow every day, uh, every night, because of worrying about my staff, my residents, and so on and so forth. So I'm glad I passed the baton to another very good provider that way, uh, because that was huge in my mind. Um, the other thing that was, and, and you addressed that a little bit, that was heart-wrenching to me, is the isolation of our residents. You know, we, we used to be like a family doing a lot of activities together and, and eating and laughing and just making a home for them. Um, they ended up having to be each one of them in their room, having their meals, you know, brought to them. Um, they would stand on the side of the door and wave at each other. The families were not allowed to come in um, for until about a couple of months ago, I think the state of Washington loosened up on that. So, you know, through that time, they would visit through the windows um, and they, we were not even allowed to open the, the windows. Uh, so they had to be on the phone where, with the hearing issues that a lot of time the elderly have uh, and the lack of physical contact, the lack of touching them and all that. Uh, it, it was very, very difficult. Um, but that generation is tough. That's one thing I, I give them. They are very tough. And they were very grateful for every little thing we could we could bring them, you know. And they were so worried about me. I got tons of cards and things like this, you know. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, they, you know, they, they were very worried and I would get notes and cards and so on and so forth. I was, uh, even post-COVID, I was even afraid to go there you know, uh, for a while. And um, so I would just pop in the office and just kind of wave like everybody, you know, I'm okay, you know. But um, losing that connection was hard. I don't know if we talked about this last time. Uh, my 
grandmother was in the long-term care facility in Odessa, Texas. And um, for the last seven, eight years of her life, actually, and my grandfather, um, who was in his 80s and the 90s, it was a daily ritual that he was there. Mm -hmm. And so this has been one of those aspects of this that I think you probably understand very well, is that that nursing home, Deering's nursing home in Odessa, was a community for him as well as it was where she was receiving care, but it was his daily routine. And he was the one circulating through the building, getting coffee, checking in with the manager. He was he was kind of the mayor of the place to a certain degree. Yeah. And yeah. they they both died before COVID. But um, I think that had they gone through this experience, it would have been bad for her, but just as bad for him because he would have yes. been totally isolated from this community that that he relied upon. And another thing is that when he got sick. The way we knew he was sick is that he didn't show up at the nursing home to see my grandmother that day. So that was the, how we found out. So the nursing home served this critical function of mm-hmm. checking on the family as mm-hmm. well. And I imagine some of that resonates with you of the kinds of stories that you had at the facilities you were uh, in. Absolutely, Scott. Uh, I think one of the hardest part about this whole thing for me was my own mother uh, in France, who was also in an assisted living, um, passed away. And they were in a complete lockdown there. Uh, she died alone. And, uh, and we couldn't go to the funeral. We couldn't say goodbye. And that was hard. Um, we were able to, through technology, that we were able to uh, be able to see the little small funeral that she had um, and um, they only allowed 15 people uh, to be present and they all had to be you know not close to each other no hugging not touching their mask and so on um, that was hard for the family that was hard for me to see that I still haven't been able to go home uh, in France um, to to see her where she's buried when did that take place in relation to your own illness? It it happened in April, April 13. So before. Yeah, before. She didn't die of COVID. Uh, she was 97. Um, but, uh, you know, she was affected just the same with my sisters used to go there every night. I have three sisters locally. I uh, would go there every night and help feeding her and put her to bed and all that. And then uh, when they couldn't come anymore, she stopped eating. And uh, she did not last very long after that. So she died, I think, of loneliness, therefore, you know, as a main cause. I'm so, I'm so sorry to hear that. I hope you get a chance to go uh, when it's safe uh, yeah. to go. I've got great plan that way. <laughs> so, Sarah, anything else you wanted to reflect on about that that time? You know, one of the things I I worry about is that we, as a, I worry about too much, maybe about all of this. But I, I, you know, the trends are getting better, of course. But I don't want these kinds of stories to be written out of the record. I think we did, we have to have these kind of conversations so that we really capture that the length of time of the suffering your mother endured, and then the broader sort of family stress that was in, involved with that. I it was a like for me personally, it was an incredibly stressful time when mom got sick, and and we'll talk about the COVID group that we that, that you were on with me as well. Um, in a, in a minute, uh, I, I tend to bury myself in work, kind of like her mom does. You can see the family connection. Yeah, I see um, that. <laughs> um, uh, you know, mom always taught me that the care of other people is the most important thing. And you can really hear that in mom's story, right? You know, who was mom worried about? Not worried about herself. You know, she's got an O2 sad of 74 and acute respiratory failure, but she's worried about dad at home. And she's worried about her residents and she's worried about her staff and her business, but not like fundamentally like, oh, this could actually happen to me. I don't know whether it's, you know, optimism bias that mom just thought, well, I'll just get through this. It'll be fine. Um, but uh, but but yeah, I mean, mom has always cared so much about other people uh, in a way that's so profound. Right. 
Um, and to lose to lose grandma, to lose Meme was really hard. And then only five weeks later to have the threat of losing mom was also really hard. You know, you lose your matriarchs. Yeah. There's a, as a as a woman to lose to lose like the, the great women in your life is really scary. Um, and then obviously, like you know, me and my husband had to sit down and be like, if anything happens to mom, what do we do with dad? Like, how do we look after dad? You know, how do we how do we negotiate this as a family? And I I don't think I talked as much to my brothers as I ever did. Um, as mm -hmm. when mom was mom was sick, we really as siblings we hadn't been very close to each other for a while. We'd kind of, you know, my my brother's doing a PhD and my other brother's kind of doing his own thing, and then we really came together to be like, okay how do we negotiate this with, you know, the parents like me and Christopher getting mom to go to the hospital and, and, you know, talking to Clark and, and bringing in the whole family in a way that kind of, kind of tied us together in a way we just, we just hadn't been that close in a long time. And we're still, we're still pretty close um, because of that, uh, because of the experience around, around mom. Um, but yeah, I think for me, my process around that experience is just not processing it, right? Like just, just working through it and keep going. And eventually I'll look back and be like, well, I have to actually process all of these feelings um, around the, the fear of losing mom. The other thing that was incredibly hard for me at the time was seeing friends and family members and people I know um, be anti-maskers um, or not really buy into COVID being a serious problem and here my mother was in hospital and I was having to see their ridiculous posts about I'm free, I don't wear a mask on Facebook or on Twitter. And it took every ounce of my being either not to block them or absolutely rage all over their Facebook <laughs> in a way that would have been probably very unhealthy for the relationship. But I was so angry about the denial of what was going on and about like the basic care and humanity for each other on a familiar, on a family level and on a friendship level that my my friends and family weren't understanding how painful this was for our family to go through. Well, one thing that I'm grateful about is that when I was really sick, that silence hypoxia is like uh, peaceful and sleeping away. And even though I got really close, I didn't ever get short of breath. I didn't feel short of breath. Uh, I was not coughing. I didn't lose my sense of taste or smell. Um, I was just going to sleep it off. And if I had not gone to the hospital that day, at the rate my oxygen was dropping, I don't think I would have survived another 24 hours. I think the person who admitted you said it was around 12 that they, they sort of said, if you hadn't come in in 12 hours, it, yeah. there, we couldn't have bring, brought you back. Yeah, and, and I think what saved my life is really being able to measure my oxygen level. Uh, had I not had that uh, available or, you know, uh, I probably would have just slipped away sleeping. I wonder if you might say just a little bit more about your um, experience in the in the hospital, I know you weren't there taking field notes, but at the same time, I am curious, as a person who has an eye for those kinds of details, what was happening in the clinical setting? I mean, was it, they were probably at the greatest surge point maybe that hospital has ever had? I don't I don't know about that particular care facility. Yeah, the, the ICU was full. They had a COVID floor that had uh, the capacity of 28 patients. I occupied the last bed when I came in, uh, they, they, um, the loneliness was there because uh, you, they, they put IV all over, they put oxygen on you and they do all of that. And my physician said, all we can do for you right now is compassionate care. We have no, uh, your liver enzymes are too high to do any things because all the system were really failing. And um, and then uh, so they they said we can't give you remdesivir we can't but they put me on steroid IV um, my potassium level was dropping as well 
And my heart rate went down to 30, which, you know, I really thought when I look at the monitor and it was down there, I thought, okay, I'm checking out, you know. Um, but uh, they were incredibly compassionate when, uh, when they came in. Um, I knew I was monitored through uh, the equipment mostly. And um, but otherwise they they were so busy with other patients and I was lucky to basically have the last room in the COVID floor there, but they were ready to open another floor if they had more patients. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking with Bernadette McBride and Sarah McBride today about Bernadette's COVID-19 experience and what that meant for the family. And Sarah, I'd like to talk a little bit about, you, you mentioned earlier, you threw yourself in, into your work through this, through this time. I loved the moment ago when you described your mom's experience, you said something about her optimism bias. That, that, that's what it's like to have a child as a disaster researcher, Bernadette. They're bringing the most up-to-date social science to explain your situation to you. But Sarah's been a real leader through this through this time. Yes, uh, she yes. as a research leader, and she really stepped up as part of this converge process. And I, I um, maybe Sarah, you could get, give a little background about what that is, because you're one of the research leaders of, I think, what must be the um, biggest team to come out of that Converge working group. And my name's on it, but I didn't contribute. Um, you were there, you were there in spirit, Scott. Follow from, a, from spirit. a distance. <laughs> but it was really astounding to see your organization uh, click in and, and the document, which I'll make available on Twitter and people should check out. Well, I will say more of that, about that in a minute, but tell us what Converge is just to set the landscape for us. Yeah, so Converge is a National Science Foundation funded initiative that's headquarters at the Natural Hazard Center at the University of Colorado Boulder. Um, I think almost all disaster researchers have know what the Natural Hazard Center is, but it's, um, I believe it was started in the 1970s by Gilbert White and it is focused solely on the study of natural disasters and its impact on people. It is uh, directed by the fantastic uh, uh, Professor Lori Peak, um, who I think is in her third year of directing the center currently. And it has many prestigious disaster researchers who have led that center, including Kathleen Tierney and Dr. Dennis Maletti, among the many illuminaries in that center. Um, the Converge Network put out a call, I believe in April or late April, around wanting to bring in community, research communities of practice around particular issues um, and, and basically coming up with ideas around putting together social science research agendas to help social scientists really figure out as a community what were the main pressing issues that social scientists were worried about or interested in or needed exploration. Um, and particularly socially relevant questions that, that needed to be answered in, in a fairly fast pace. So I started one, I started a pitch on geohazards and COVID and the, the intersection there. And I became friends and colleagues uh, with the fantastic Lisa Kurt, Liza Kurtz and Den, uh, David Hondula at Arizona State University who were doing extreme, extreme weather uh, and COVID and we thought, this sounds like fun. We have two big groups. Let's just merge them together. And so between the two groups, we got 78 researchers around the world to work together on creating a social science research agenda for extreme weather and geohazards in the time of COVID-19. Um, and I think the groups only met for, I believe it was six weeks. Um, and in that time, we also had sub working groups. So the schedule was we had uh, two meetings on a Monday, one at 8 a.m. and one at 8 p.m. Pacific time to try to get everyone in all the different time zones because uh, we had some people who could make it at 8, who were 8 p.m. and that was the group I led and that was the New Zealand group with the Australians and that was a little bit rambunctious, you know. Um, 
and always fun, great fun with the with the New Zealanders. And New Zealand has had a totally different COVID experience, right? They've had something, they've just done it very differently than what we've had here. And then David did the 8 a.m., which was for the either the early risers in the Pacific, um, but then all the East Coast group and then Europe as well. So we could get we had a number of researchers from the UK in particular uh, who joined us, as well as ones in mainland Europe. I think we also had a researcher from Bangladesh as well and a couple from India. So we had a pretty uh, global perspective. And um, I remember when mom went to the hospital and got quite sick, I actually ran a session while she was still in the hospital twice. So there were two sessions where she was still in the hospital. And I remember like checking my phone and like sending a message to dad right before the meetings and being like, dad, if anything happens, you know, call me immediately. And, you know, I'm in a meeting, but don't worry, like I'll step out just to be there. And, um, I remember chairing those meetings and it was kind of a real source of work comfort, if you will, to be around all of these wonderful researchers and talk about these issues, but also know when we when we came together as the writing team, which was a small team, it was me, Liza, um, David, uh, Ann Bostrom, uh, the fantastic Ann Bostrom played a really pivotal role as editor of the whole thing. I think we originally had 29 pages and it had to be 10 and we came out with 15. So that tells you like the magic of Bostrom um, and her editing skills. Uh, you know, we, we came together as a smaller team and really focusing on that and getting that done uh, kind of got me through it, but it also grounded the work in a very personal experience. Like I wasn't talking about, um, a, you know, vulnerable communities 3,000 miles away, I as a researcher was also a disaster survivor with my mother. And that really laid a powerful research, sorry, foundation for that word. Well, just to underline the importance of that, and I think for people who um, hadn't thought about this, you know, before last year, this term compound disaster became one that actually I was pleased to see the media picked up and did a fair amount. I thought a pretty good news coverage um, in June of last year around the beginning of hurricane season uh, with geohazards. It's a little different. It's a little harder to report, I think. And so but the sense that the COVID is the background now through which all of these other disasters are gonna play in front of and interconnect with. And I think that was surprising and terrifying to a lot of people that maybe they sort of assume, well, while we're dealing with this one disaster, of course, other ones will not happen, but disaster researchers know better. And in fact, drawing out those connections as you did in the working group between extreme weather events, geohazards and COVID is really, really important work. I think also to you know something that people know, I mean, the. COVID situation is what it is in the United States has gotten a lot better. That's not the case in Brazil or in India. And so, you know, this is an ongoing, and we don't know how long, uh, pandemic. And so these other kinds of hazards are gonna turn into disasters throughout this throughout this period intermittently. So we have to think about those, those connections. I, let me just, we, we don't have time to go through all of that because as you said, it's, you came up with a really amazing document um, but there are a couple of sort of high-level takeaways that you talk about in the document. And I'm just going to quote the first one. You say in the paper, COVID-19 directly impacts the health and well-being of individuals who contract the virus and communities where it's experienced. Individuals who become sick with COVID may lose the ability to take protective action for extreme weather and geohazard events or become more susceptible to them. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of the research? Yeah, and, and we ha we have seen that play a little bit in the geohazards space um, around the protective actions. We saw that a little bit in St. Vincent and Soufriere, um, where evacuations became very complex because of COVID. And, you know, you're putting people on boats to get away from a volcano, but they can't socially distance from each other because they're on a boat. That's the only way to evacuate off of the island. And then they're being taken to evacuation centers where, again, there may not be that space to do, you know, safe uh, physical distancing from from each other. And, um, you know, and there, there's all these complex issues that we've seen come out, like 
where we're asking people to choose basically which protective action maybe to take. On one hand, go on a boat and evacuate from a an erupting volcano, which is a very eminent threat, but also make an agreement with yourself that you might have to live with the impacts of exposing yourself to COVID um, in a way that maybe you wouldn't have if you'd stayed in your home. And so I don't think people of uh, in St. Vincent had much of a choice. Um, and, you know, it, it, but it has exposed vulnerabilities again in a, in a different way. And, and as you know, as disaster researchers, we're always looking at, at people's vulnerabilities. And COVID has almost become a vulnerability conversation in some ways, uh, more than um, more than maybe a hazard itself. Like it just increases the level of, of vulnerability amongst our, uh, as you say, it's, it's a sort of like background now to other events coming in. And it's that concurrent compounding disasters that's occurring. I, and I can't think of many places that have seen this more than say Puerto Rico, where we have hurricane, we've, we've had hurricanes, we've had earthquakes. They had an earthquake sequence that started in January, 2020 that continues. They just had a 4.2 over the weekend. And then they also had COVID on top of that. And I'm working very closely with the enormously talented and gifted Dr. Jennifer Santos Hernandez at University of Puerto Rico. And we're working together on unpacking this, this problem as well, um, which is an extension of the, the COVID research agenda that we that Jennifer was on the team too. So there's, yeah, starting to become these case studies that are emergent, but as we just talked about before we started this phone call, this is gonna be years of unpacking as researchers and, and really digging in to all of these these issues. I'm glad you mentioned Puerto Rico because it's also not just dealing with COVID and then worrying about, you know, will there be a volcanic eruption or an earthquake, but it's also that disasters which have happened recently or even a long time ago, where there's still active recovery, people are still coping with that. That's a recovery process that then also has to be understood now in the sort of through the prism of COVID and there's a sort of second high level finding from the paper and I'm just gonna quote again, you say in the paper, secondly, a wide range of response strategies have been undertaken to reduce the risk of COVID-19 transmission. But these response strategies and the subsequent impacts they create can also modify the dynamics of extreme weather and geohazard risk. So it's kind of an extension of the, of the first point, maybe a little counterintuitive to people. I wonder if you might just say a little bit more about that area of the work and even more generally, you know, how the group plans to go forward from here in terms of the research. Yeah, I, I mean, and, and that sort of tipped a hat to a, a wide range of issues. But one of the issues I've become increasingly concerned with is um, and, and has impacted my 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 other job around uh, working on earthquake early warning um, is around our responders and how exhausted and burnt out our emergency managers are and our frontline responders and our health providers. And so if they're already exhausted from dealing with COVID, imagine putting another uh, disaster event on top of that and then having to respond to that. And at some point, you're calling on the same people all the time, there is this level of exhaustion. And we saw this a little bit um, with uh, with Shake Alert, with a, you know delayed state rollouts, and also, just I have so much compassion for my emergency management colleagues who worked alongside the USGS to roll these that roll Shakeler out to all to Washington and Oregon in February and in May of this year, um, putting extra load on them on top of you know COVID, trying to find a time um, that was optimal for them where they weren't facing you know extreme events and COVID on top of that was a real was a real challenge. So even running, you know, every day, well, you know, even trying to get a, an earthquake early warning system launched became an incredibly complex endeavor in the lens of COVID. And that's only, a, a, you know, a pretty small example, but it's one that I can definitely speak to from, from personal experience. In terms of where the working group goes next, uh, I keep on threatening to write a paper over this if I get any time to do it. Um, but uh, certainly we have collected data on, um, with, with Ann Bostrom on uh, understanding COVID and how people think about other hazards with COVID. So risk perception, 
Has COVID changed people's risk perception around earthquakes in particular since COVID? Um, has it changed their level of preparedness or preparedness actions? So we've collected that data in Washington, Oregon, and California. We're hoping to publish on it. Um, and yes, I'm hoping to uh, work with this group again. It has taken a little bit of a rest um, because it was such a gargantuan task to get it to this stage. And also I was, uh, I don't wanna say too much about this, but um, it has been an intriguing transition from administration to administration. Let's just put it that way. And um, I think that I'm really excited to pursue this research going forward. And I think that I, I'm, I'm going to be allowed to fully do that now. Now, thank you for that. I mean, this is a science forward moment. I mean, this, you know, everywhere you look, there's new data to try to pick up and understand what's going on, you know, through this through this pandemic and, of course, still unfolding. Absolutely. I do think I want to just one quickly circle back to one thing you mentioned, which I think is important and I feel like is a just a crucial research area is trying to understand how long it will take for emergency management operations. And I mean that very broadly to come back to some level of capacity that they might have been in January of 2020. It just doesn't happen all at once. And I don't know if you're, if the study is sort of branching off into that, Sarah, and I know it won't be a one size fits all, but it was a, you know, every emergency operations center in America was activated simultaneously. That we've never seen yeah. anything we've, like that. We've, we've never seen anything like this in terms of not just the United States, but our whole emergency, our international emergency managers, globally as a community, everyone was pretty much involved on some level in, in some capacity. It was sort of all hands on deck around the world, as far as I know. Um, even my emergency colleagues in New Zealand, even though, again, New Zealand dealt with this very differently, all of them have, you know, worked on COVID um, during their one lockdown, and um, I won't try to be too jealous sounding about their one lockdown <laughs> for six weeks. Um, but you know, everyone has had this work. But I also think that there's some real complexities here around emergency management and um, and workforce issues, right? Because you also had a workforce that was a little bit older. A lot of them have are ret were retired or took this opportunity to retire or will retire shortly. And so we're now seeing some of these handing of the, you know, changing of the guards in terms of who, who now is an emergency manager. And I think we're going to see a very different emergency management community emerge post COVID in terms of uh, issues around diversity and inclusion as well, which I know has been a huge discussion in the emergency management community and how to increase inclusion and equity there. So I think it's also spotlighted that emergency management is indeed a field and a profession and it's a job that you can do. And emergency managers, I think, did have to step forward in a way that that globally, in a way that maybe they hadn't previously. So I think I am very curious to see. And and that really is, you know, the domain of like, uh, you know, Sam Montano, who does a fantastic job representing emergency manage managers. And she also did her own COVID research agenda on emergency management that was specific to that. And I'll be very interested on how that conversation is like. Well, people can learn more about this by going to the University of Colorado uh, Natural Hazard Center website and see all the different converge work there. And again, this report that I've been talking about with Sarah McBride is titled Extreme Weather Events and Geohazards in a Time of COVID-19. And it's well worth checking out if you want to know where that field is going in the next decade. Give that a close read. Bernadette, I wanted to bring you back in, first of all, just in case you wanted to uh, just marvel for a second at all of the work your daughter was doing during that during that year. But also, you, I mean, I'm sort of curious to know how you think about what's happened in nursing homes and elder, other kind of, uh, you know, congregate care facilities. You have a unique vantage point as a person who's run them as a professional. And the post-COVID accounting for what's happened in those, I mean, yours performed very well, but that was not the case everywhere in the United States or around the world. We're seeing, uh, well, in the communities, in the senior community, a lot of, of residents have been vaccinated. 
in our in our facilities, um, the pharmacists came in and vaccinated everybody. So we were in pretty good shape um, right away, or fairly quickly. I, I just made round today because I can't get away. And it was nice to see the residents back at the table talking. And uh, the the staff still wore masks um, uh, most of the time. Uh, and and the happiness is coming back. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm, I, I think we're healing. Uh, we are healing. And uh, it's good to see that. There is, but the uh, COVID is still there. Uh, we lost a friend who was only 42 years old recently. Uh, basically at the same type of COVID that I did, just went to sleep and didn't wake up. Uh, and um, so it's still there, you know, and we still have to be careful. Oh, let me get this straight. You, you still go in, you were there today. Yeah. What what does that do in, for your own recovery process, Bernadette? It's it's healing for me to see um, the residents going back to being happy and you know communicating. It's it's healing to see the families coming in and dropping by some flowers and all that. They're still being checked for their temperature and so on and so forth. But to me, um, we look like we are getting at the tail end of this awful pandemic. Sarah, just um, we're wrapping up now, um, and I've really appreciated this time with Sarah. I muted myself in the in the middle of that. Sorry about that. Really enjoyed this time with Sarah McBride and Bernadette McBride, and I just appreciate your openness in discussion. And it's rare to have this conversation not only with the COVID survivor and a long COVID survivor, but also a, a mother and daughter team uh, to talk about this. So, um, so much gained in the discussion, not just about the illness, but about what it means in terms of repercussions in the family. I want to just sort of give a chance if there's anything else we didn't cover or, or any other reflections you wanted to, to share at, at this point. Sarah, I'll bring you back in on that. Uh, you know, I, I think that it, like mom said, it is it is getting better. Um, but for me, I guess that I still do struggle with a certain amount of um, exhaustion from this process. And I think that we have delayed our grieving on so many things. Um, and I certainly get emotional about mom's experience and, and being her, her daughter um, or the less good version of my mom, as I like to say. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, I think that we have delayed emotionally and socially so many things in our society, and there's going to be a time where that's, I think, going to need to happen. And that might be a very long period of time. And we're, I think just like grieving, you can't rush that. You know, it's not a one-day memorial. As well-meaning and as warm and wonderful as those thoughts are, I, I, I think that there's going to have to be this acknowledgement that there's going to be a significant transition um, time period and, um, and, and to be compassionate and empathetic that everyone had a different experience and a different relationship with COVID. And, um, yeah, the, the, the healing process will happen hopefully. Uh, but it's going to take, I think, a, a long time. And I just want to say how proud I am of mom. She's just the coolest, right? Like you can see kind of where I come from and, and my desire to work in disasters and to be a humanitarian is completely 100% inspired by my mom's um, unstoppable spirit. And uh, just, just yeah, I'm just really glad that you made it through, Mom. Yeah, I take care of people one at a time, and you take care of people uh, masses at a time. That's uh, our difference. You, you augmented the caring. <laughs> yeah. I love you, Mom. Love you, too. You've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Please join me back on Monday for the next discussion on COVID Calls and another full week of discussions next week. And just uh, 
to let you know, I had said this um, a few weeks back and just bring you up to date, there is a very hardworking team right now uh, getting the research portal for COVID calls together. And I hope to say more about that in the coming weeks that all of the previous calls and those coming up will be available in audio, video, transcript, and it'll be a space for researchers to congregate and make new work. And that should be launching in the next couple of weeks, I hope. And I wanna just again, thank my guests today, Bernadette McBride and Sarah McBride. Sarah and I keep up with each other on social media, so it's nice to see you in sort of person. I don't know what this person-ish. Um, Zoom I'm sorry. Space. I'm sorry uh, for calling you. I'm sorry for calling you the Terminator of disaster research. It came from a place I'll of love and affection. I, I know you meant that. In, I know you meant that in a nonviolent way. I understand. <laughs> I just like. Um, I'm so. A. I'm so thankful for you letting us to have this time and the fact that Mom and I now have a record of these conversations, a year from each other. I think is going to be something we'll reflect on for a long time. But I also want to just thank you so much for. I know that you mean so much to the community, uh, to the disaster research community that you do these calls and it, you are unstoppable in, in doing this. Like I tried to vlog myself for five minutes when COVID first started with the intention of doing it every day. And I stopped after two days. So uh, the fact that you've kept this up, uh, you're just an absolute gem, Scott. So thank you so much on behalf of the community for doing Thanks, this. Thank you for inviting us, Scott. It's so great to see you again, Bernadette, and I hope we get a chance to talk again later this year. Stay healthy, everybody, and we'll see you on Monday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time.